Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Begin transmission in 3, 2, 1. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month, I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. I'm Greer Jackson. Now, if you listened to last month's Naked Astronomy, you will have heard me say that we're going to talk about the Big Bang in February's edition of Naked Astronomy. Well, I'm not. And I have a really good reason as to why. So hear me out. That is the sound of something that scientists have spent decades trying to find. And it's something that scientists have been saying is probably as exciting, if not more exciting, than the discovery of the Higgs boson, the so-called God particle. And this month, they announced that they'd found it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have detected gravitational waves. We did it. We did a lot of running from office to office, telling our God, have you seen this? You know, it's amazing. So it was, it was pretty fantastic. We'll have a whole new way to look at our universe, which is pretty exciting. It's as if we are now listening to the sky as well as seeing it. So it's going to see objects that are, are different, that can't be seen in any other way. And we can see so cool things, like black holes colliding. It's uh, really opening up of a new era. And given that this podcast is all about astronomy, it would be criminal of me not to be talking about it. The case was made even more strongly when I got an email from Robin Lauren. It wasn't more than a week ago that there was lots of noise and brouhaha about these gravitational waves. And uh, of course, I didn't understand anything about it, about what's so significant about them, but, but it seemed like something, something really nifty and, and something that Einstein said a hundred years ago, that, hey, there shall be gravitational waves. It made sense in my, in my mind. And then I remembered uh, another podcast where they, they uh, tried to explain Einstein's general relativity, that there isn't really such a thing as gravi- gravity. And this comes from the same Einstein that sort of said that, hey, gravitational waves, and then there is no, no such thing. So uh, it's just curves in space. And then it doesn't make any sense to me anymore. <laughs> yeah, you're sort of left feeling like, what the heck is going on here? It's the same guy. He was a genius, so he should, sort of should um, have his facts straight. So this month on Naked Astronomy, gravitational waves with a hint of the Big Bang. Okay, gravitational waves stripped down bare. Here we go. 
They're like waves in the sea or ripples from a stone dropped into a pond. There's a ruddy great big event in space, like two black holes colliding, or even the birth of our universe at the Big Bang. If we're continuing with our pond analogy, a massive stone, heck, a boulder, would have been dropped in. And you can imagine loads of ripples propagating out. And this disturbance creates waves and ripples across the fabric of space-time. So, if you dance around like me, you're actually creating gravitational waves. David Marsh at Cambridge University and myself thought this idea was pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. (laughs) Undetectably small, but nevertheless, you're creating gravitational waves. (laughs) The effect of this ripple bends and stretches space and time and the one detected shook detectors for 20 milliseconds so does that mean as a gravitational wave passes through me i get momentarily skinnier and taller or fatter and shorter or albeit for a fraction of a second john kaufman from the university of california san diego yeah, but this is this is sort of the the funny part, and this is what what really makes LIGO so so incredible is that um, the ways in which you would tell if you were taller or shorter, uh, uh, you know, or fatter or skinnier, um, would also stretch. So your ruler would stretch. And in part, that's why they've been so difficult to detect. Massive, huge, ruddy, great big things only distort space time by the width of a proton, despite being seemingly unimaginably tiny objects, Einstein somehow dreamt them up. Gravitational waves are a prediction from Einstein's general theory of relativity, which he produced a hundred years ago. And this was one of the final parts of his theory, which had yet to be proven. And now that we have made this dissection, we have proved that gravitational waves exist a hundred years after their prediction. Very timely indeed, isn't it? I, was that deliberate? <laughs> no, it's not deliberate, of course, but it is very timely and it is wonderful that that, that has happened on the 100th anniversary. Nona Robertson there from Caltech University. By the way, we will be hearing more from all these guys later in the programme in more detail, so just bear with me. Now, Isaac Newton explained how an apple fell from a tree. The objects with mass were attracted to each other, but not why. And this is where Einstein comes in. Einstein said, hey, the reason they're attracted to each other is because massive objects bend the fabric of space-time. David Marsh again. One way to think about it is that space-time is like a mattress, if you wish. And if you place a very heavy object on this mattress, it will sink down and the the mattress around it will bend upwards. So that's what happens in gravity. So if you if you have a heavy object, any heavy object, like me... Or even um, something like the sun. Or even the sun, uh, even a little bit more heavy. Just a little uh, bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, bend space-time around it. This takes us to Robin's question about gravity, Einstein and Newton. Newton thought gravity was a force. Einstein thought that massive objects, the sun, the moon, the stars, and in David's analogy, a bowling ball, create a curvature in space-time. And this is what we feel as gravity. In general relativity, gravity isn't a force between masses. It's an effect of the warping of space-time. If we return to gravitational waves, when massive objects collide, they create ripples across the fabric of space-time, just like if you dropped that bowling ball on a sheet. 
And we've been trying to detect these things, these ripples, for donkey's years. People have spent their entire careers working on this. And this month, the Ligue 18 found them. Ladies and gentlemen, we have detected gravitational waves. We did it. But how did they do it? They announced the results from the States, but there was a special meeting for us Brits in London. And this is where I met Norna Robertson from Caltech, who's helped detect these elusive things. The event that we saw was two black holes which were orbiting each other in a a double system so that they're going around each other and they're also moving towards each other because they're losing energy as they orbit each other. And so they speed up and go round and round faster and faster until they finally merge. And it's that final in-spiral and merger, which happens in a fraction of a second, that produce a big burst of gravitational waves. And that's rippled across the universe to us. How long did it take to reach us, though? The event happened something like one billion years ago, a billion light years away, and it's taken all that time to ripple across space towards us and pass through the Earth on September the 14th, 2015. It's quite remarkable, really, isn't it? It is remarkable. It's, it's wonderful. There have been many, many people involved in developing detectors and developing all the analysis techniques, and for all of us, this is really a momentous occasion. Alongside Norna, something like a thousand scientists across 16 countries have been working together for 25 years. And like Norna, Sheila Rowan from Glasgow University has spent her whole career searching for them. When they're produced, of course, there's a huge amount of energy as two black holes collide, but then that's got to spread out and travel across the universe. So by the time it gets to us here on Earth, it's a tiny signal. And that means it's hard for us to build instruments that are sensitive enough to do that. And the way we do it is we actually take light from a laser, we split that laser light into two, and we send it out along actually two four-kilometre-long paths. It hits mirrors at the ends of those paths. Those mirrors send the laser light back. The light then adds up again there. And whether it adds up so that you get a bright spot or whether it cancels itself out and you get a dark spot depends on how far the light has travelled on that four-kilometre path. Now, what a gravitational wave does when it arrives is it changes the lengths of the arms, what we call the arms, the paths that the light has travelled. And fundamentally, it does that by shaking the mirrors that we've put down. The trouble is it doesn't really shake them very much. It shakes those mirrors by about one ten thousandth of the size of a proton inside an atom. (laughs) So how would you ever measure that? It's a big challenge, and that's one of the reasons it's taken decades of work to do this. And there are various things that are key. Um, One incredibly important thing, of course, is to take those mirrors that the gravitational wave's going to shake and make sure that nothing else shakes them. So we couldn't just sit them on the ground because the ground moves all the time. There's what we call seismic motion. The ground shakes. It shakes due to faraway earthquakes. Um, It shakes just due to people driving cars past. So we can't do that. Instead, what we do is we take the mirrors and we actually hang them. And we suspend them, in fact, on very fine, ultra-pure glass fibres. And why do we do that? Well, 
hanging the mirrors actually isolates them from the ground. If you hang something, you build a mechanical filter. It filters out noise, the ground noise. But those glass fibres are special because every single atom in those mirrors and in the fibres that hang it is shaking slightly. It's got it's it's just at room temperature. Everything that has um, is just at room temperature is shaking a little bit. That's what we call thermal energy. Um, and making these fibres out of glass and these mirrors out of glass, and to give you some perspective, those mirrors are 40 kilos, they're not small, um, both isolates, filters out the ground motion and keeps that thermal motion low. So what we've done is make mirrors that are almost motionless. They're hanging there, just waiting for a gravitational wave to come by and shake them. Wow. So we've detected one of these gravitational waves. It took, what, 20 milliseconds? Is that how long it shook the, the mirror for? Yeah. Um, we've detected one of them. When's the next one? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Um, and we don't know the answer to that yet. We do have more data that we've taken. Um, the event we detected here came from um, some fraction of the data that we've got so far, and that's all we've had time to analyse. We do have more data, we just haven't had time to look in there yet and and uh, see what's in there, so we can check that and announce that, and, and if there's anything there, um, uh, uh, see it. So we don't know, um, you'll, you'll have to wait to hear back from us, but we promise we're looking hard. What you end up with is, in effect, this sequence that you've added, precisely inserted in the targeted position in the genome. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we look at the hottest new biotechnology technique to hit the headlines since forever. CRISPR has big implications for health, plus linking genetics to lifestyle, and our gene of the month is black and white and very cute. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. Here on Naked Astronomy with me, Greer Jackson, we've been drilling deeper into this enormous breakthrough in cosmology, the detection of gravitational waves by the LIGO team. But in 2013, there was a rather similar headline that a different team, BICEP, had indirectly detected some gravitational waves. We covered it in one of our other podcasts, The Naked Scientists. Here's a clip. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics. Medicine. Nature. Space. Time. Brain. Life. The universe. In March this year, the US BICEP team of astronomers claimed to have found the long-sought evidence for cosmic inflation, one of the mechanisms that underpins what happened in a fraction of a second after the Big Bang when the universe began. Inflation has been theorised for decades and the results caused quite a big stir in the scientific community with talk of Nobel Prizes being awarded to the astronomers concerned. The evidence Chris was referring to was an indirect detection of gravitational waves and it was found by a team of American astronomers using a telescope called BICEP. But these waves are different to the waves that have been announced this week and actually the BICEP evidence has since been called into question by another satellite called Planck. So what the heck is going on here? How can these gravitational waves have the same name but could be completely different? And why didn't scientists just give it another name? To spot the difference, we have to return to the Big Bang. 
I did promise you some Big Bang, didn't I? And a theory called inflation. This explains how the universe went from being something teeny tiny tiny to the massive expanse that our universe is today. So, so okay, so my name is David Marsh and I, my title is Stephen Hawking Advanced Fellow slash Senior Research Associate at the Center for Theoretical Cosmology at the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge. I feel like I've got your <gasps> postal address, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big, long title. It's a long title, yes. <laughs> Does that mean you work with Stephen Hawking then? Uh, I met him, but I don't, no, I, I don't work with him at the moment. No. Oh, well, there no. you go then. What inflation is, is an expansion of the universe, but it expands at an accelerated pace. So each each block of space at any given moment of time creates another block, say, of the same size. And then those two blocks, each creates one block. And then you have four blocks, and then these four blocks create another four. And then these eight creates another eight. Your maths is much better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) And... (laughs) So it's, a, it's an exponential expansion of space. Inflation is driven by some energy density um, and quantum fluctuations in this energy density on very, very small scales uh, get stretched during inflation because space expands and everything gets stretched with it. So in the end, these um, quantum fluctuations can become as big as the universe. A quantum fluctuation is a change in the amount of energy in a point in space for a period of time. Why it's important is because these tiny changes in energy were the seeds of matter and structure in our universe. In other words, these fluctuations created galaxies, stars, planets, and, as it happens, gravitational waves. These tiny fluctuations have now been stretched with inflation and are absolutely huge and pretty much undetectable, as David was just saying. So in the end, these um, quantum fluctuations can become as big as the universe, or even bigger. (laughs) That's a bit mind-boggling. How do we know that they're there if they're on that sort of scale? Yeah, so that's the thing. If if we wouldn't have any observational evidence for it, um, most of us would have just dismissed this as a theory. But now the, the funny thing is about the CMB is that in the theory of inflation, these stretched quantum fluctuations is what what is responsible to the small temperature fluctuations that we see in different directions of the sky. So when, when we look at the sky at microwave wavelengths, we would see the cosmic microwave background and it would seem almost completely smooth, almost having the same temperature everywhere. And so we, we can compute the temperature. It's, two, uh, it's, it's 2.7 Kelvin. So it's, uh, what is it, minus 271 degrees. Pretty cold then. <laughs> cold, yeah. Um, and then you, you can compute it, you can first, second, third, fourth, and then at the fifth digit, you see that it starts to vary if you look in different directions of space. So at that level of accuracy or at that level of, of, um, um, of the temperature, it starts to fluctuate in different directions. Um, so those are the fluctuations that come from quantum fluctuations in the early universe. And you know who's looking up to the sky, to the cosmic microwave background for days on end, trying to detect some evidence for inflation with gravitational waves? Meet John Kaufman from the University of California, San Diego. The name of the telescope he uses is BICEP, which makes John, in my mind, Bicep Man. 
you know, the, the inflation theory, the sort of bang behind the Big Bang, um, our, our best understanding for how the universe came to be. And so this would create, uh, send gravitational waves rippling throughout the universe. Um, we don't look today, you know, using something like LIGO. Uh, we look about 13.8 billion years ago uh, when these waves would have been much, much stronger. Um, at the surface of, of last scattering, this cosmic microwave background, which is the uh, transition between the very, very hot, uh, um, you know, dense early universe and the universe that's a lot more recognizable uh, to what we see when we look out with our telescopes now. In other words, these gravitational waves would have left an imprint on the CMB, hotter or colder patches. And this is what John is hunting for with his telescope bicep. However, it's located in a rather inconvenient place. The South Pole. What you can hear is a video of John and colleagues heading out on a skidoo to the telescope. They're wearing so much clothing that not a bit of flesh is visible, despite it being a beautiful blue-skied and sunny day. It can be grueling, but um, I like it down there. It's it's so unique. It's it's really alien. You really feel like you're on a different planet. There's nothing recognizable when you're at the South Pole. There's no features. There's no plants. There are no animals. I mean, there's no insects. Imagine a world where there's no flies or spiders around. What I want to know is why weren't there any penguins? <laughs> yeah, nothing. Nothing can survive at the South Pole. So when you're looking at the cosmic microwave background, the CMB, what are you looking for? Well, what our telescope does is we look for correlations on our patch of sky. Uh, and we measure the temperature of the, of the cosmic microwave background, uh, the E-mode polarization, and the B-mode polarization. So this is a very different kind of telescope than sort of what you would imagine uh, when you think of a, a big telescope. It's, it's actually relatively small. Um, you know, it's only a couple meters high and, and uh, about um, 30 centimeters across uh, the focal plane um, where all our detectors live. And it's not a big dish. It's, it's a refractor, kind of like what Galileo used to, to stare up at the sky. Um, just a couple of lenses, and then instead of an eyepiece, it's it's um, you know these these superconducting detectors, these this advanced technology that we used. Um, well, for for example, for Bicep two, um, and so uh, with Bicep we didn't detect anything, but Bicep two was already in the works, uh, which was going to add about a factor of ten um, in terms of sensitivity. So you know, uh, one year of Bicep two measurement would be equal to ten years of Bicep one measurement. Mm-hmm. And so this polarization you're looking for, what's that? How light is uh, uh, an electromagnetic radiation, it means that there's an oscillating uh, electromagnetic field, and if it has a preferred direction that it likes to oscillate, if you imagine you hold a string and you, and you, you whip your hand up and down, uh, you're creating a wave on this string that's polarized in one direction, uh, the up and down direction. If you whip your hand left and right, you'll create a polarized wave left and right. Uh, it just means that there is a preferential axis uh, to, to the, the wave that you've generated. Okay, and that's what you detected. Right, only gravitational waves can create B-mode polarization at 
this time at this cosmic microwave background time. And uh, it became clear um, relatively early on that we were seeing something. And none of us believed it. We all expected it was some sort of systematic contamination. And so we set about for, for a long time to just try to convince ourselves that what we were seeing wasn't real. And all sorts of crazy ideas of what this could be, uh, including um, one of my favorites, which is the communication satellite um, that we use for internet at the South Pole, uh, might have been interfering with our with our uh, telescope, so we you know we ruled that out. We ruled everything we could think of out. You know there were no bad ideas, <laughs> and when when finally everything was ruled out, it looked like this must be on the sky, and so of course that was very exciting. None of us, you know, the excitement took a long time to build up because we were so con convinced that it was wrong that there was nothing there, and and so as even as we're writing the paper, it was just sort of you know, well, all right, we see this thing. It looks like it's real. Let's just move on. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. We'll keep doing science. Um, and, and then, of course, uh, yeah, we, we published and, and uh, we, we, we made the announcement. It was very exciting. And it was starting to hit me that this is something that people might be interested in. You know, people, not just us. Articles started popping up, you know, New York Times, then you know NPR, then you know everything, you know, all sorts of news sources from from reputable to crazy ones, were all uh, were all starting to talk about it, and there was so much interaction going on that I was just too excited. I just wanted to like shout it from the mountaintop, um, and then things got very interesting. <laughs> things did indeed get interesting. Why? Well, because of dust. Yep. You heard me right. Dust by supernovae or comets and so on all create dust. And this dust can create the same polarisation in the CMB as gravitational waves. When BICEP was being conceived, the idea was you look at the most empty patch of the sky. And the question, of course, is, well, what do you mean by empty? And, and what, we, what we looked at were maps of dust. And we, you, you know, you say, oh, here's a big hole that's that's visible 24/7 from the South Pole. Let's do that. And what uh, what was done up until you know our measurement was you you looked at the the intensity of the uh, the dust. You expected some amount of polarization, and you calculated the level at which this would contaminate the signal. And this was way way below anything that we had seen. So all these were models. Um, but it all looked like these these this dust level would be would be tiny. Well, what happened afterwards is that the measurements from the Planck uh, satellite came in, and they showed that contrary to what we were thinking, the less intensity of dust you have, actually, the higher the polarization fraction of the dust, which means it's worse. Um, now, you know, it doesn't mean if you look through the center of the galaxy, it would be better because there's a lot of dust. But it does mean that that out at the the edges that we're looking at, um, the dust polarization fraction is a lot higher than anyone expected. With our result, it, it really injected a lot of excitement into the field from you know external sources, and then with the the, the Planck controversy, of course, everyone likes likes a controversy. Everyone likes a battle. 
They sure do, but gravitational waves from recent events like black holes have been detected. This is one of the final bits of evidence for Einstein's theory of relativity. So should John just pack his bags and be done? Nope, apparently not. Ah, so these gravitational waves, the one that, that experiments like, like BICEP and, and, and many others uh, are looking for, are pretty significant because they would be extreme evidence for the theory of inflation. And the theory of inflation is, is really, I mean, there's, there's a lot of evidence for it already, but it is, it is one of the most important, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm a little biased, but one of the most important uh, theories that I think humankind has ever developed in the sense that it is the, the sort of why are we here? You know, why does the universe look like it does? Why is it, uh, um, you know, susceptible to stars and galaxies and, and, and you know, uh, habitable worlds and, and life? Um, you know, how did we, how did the universe get here? And inflation answers that. And so while there is a significant amount of evidence for it, um, there isn't a... Uh, the smoking gun of this has not been detected, and that is the, these gravitational waves. The work for John and the rest of the BICEP team continues then, but I wonder, now that the LIGO group have found recent gravitational waves, what does that mean? I know it's great that there's another bit of evidence to add to the pile when it comes to Einstein's theories, but does that really change anything? Sheila Rowan again. These gravitational signals come from objects that may not emit any light. Black holes are, are called black for a reason. And two black holes colliding, as, as we've detected, that's an event that might not actually produce any other optical signal or any other or light electromagnetic signals, X-rays. We just don't know that, but it's possible it, it doesn't produce anything other than gravitational signals. And that means... With these detectors, for the very first time, we can potentially sense a whole new set of events in the universe that we couldn't see any other way. It also means there are other sorts of things out in the cosmos, some things that do produce optical or other uh, a light, um, like supernovae. We see those with our current telescopes. But on the whole, we typically see the outside of a star exploding. We also get some particles called neutrinos that, that can come from that event, that come from the inside, but mostly we see the outside. Gravitational signals, because of the way they're produced, they come from the actual matter, the mass in that star exploding. And so we might actually be able to get insights into the mechanism, the, what actually happens inside a star when it explodes, we have theories for that right now, but we don't actually know. We also may see whole different um, classes of things, types of events like neutron stars, very exotic stars. We don't know exactly what the material is inside a neutron star. It's under such pressure, high density, we couldn't even try and replicate that on Earth. Space for that is our laboratory. Neutron stars smashing into one another, a neutron star being eaten by a black hole. Those were all fascinating things to try and see the gravitational signals from. And as we improve our detectors, make them even more sensitive, we will 
be able to sense these kinds of things of an even larger volume of the universe. Right now, we're just starting to be seeing these things, hearing these things, in fact. But as time goes on, we'll see further out, further back in time. And possibly one of the most interesting prospects is what we don't know. We have ideas about what might be out there, but this is the first time we've been able to sense the gravitational universe. Every other time a telescope's turned on, whether it was an X-ray, UV, gamma ray, all those telescopes out there, people saw things they didn't expect. So, I think we might see gravitational waves from new things we haven't even thought of yet. Sounds like something a bit out of sci-fi, but the way I'm envisioning it, things you don't know, sort of the unknown unknowns out there that we might finally be able to detect. A new era. I think that's right. It's a, it's a whole new way to do astronomy. I think that's going to be very exciting in years to come. This is, this is a fantastic field to work in. I know I, I wanted to be a scientist and wanted to be a physicist, I think, since I was about nine years old. And I, when I was young, I couldn't think of anything more exciting to do in life than spend it studying these big questions in the universe. When you go out and you look up, where did it all come from? What's out there? How far does it go? And I've been lucky enough that I've been able to spend my life working in this area and doing that. And I hope um, it's a fantastic life. And I I really hope that we'll see um, more smart young people coming into physics and wanting to follow this path because it's a, a fantastically enjoyable thing to do. Watch this space then. Or as my colleague in Glasgow often says, watch this space time. (laughs) God, don't you just hate it when someone beats you to a punchline? Anyway, I hope that just about wraps up any loose ends when it comes to gravitational waves. I wanted to say a huge thank you to all the people you heard from today who've given up their time for free and let me interview them. That's David Marsh, Norna Robertson, Sheila Rowan and John Kaufman. You are the dream team. Now, before I say adios, I want to do a quick shout out for those of you who got in contact after the relaunch of Naked Astronomy last month. You know who you are. It's always really heartwarming to hear from you. Somebody's listening. Yay! And they took their time to email me with what they liked and didn't like. Double yay. So if you want to, and no pressure you can email me. You'll need a pen and paper though because my name is not so easy to spell. Ready? It's Graya, G-R-A-I-H-A-G-H at thenakedscientists.com. Okay, I'll look forward to that. And in the meantime, if you're wanting more amazing science content, you should check out our main podcast. This month, we've been looking into caffeine. Is it good or is it bad for you? We've done a science of dating, but also loads more cosmology stuff, like a mega pack show about black holes that my colleague Georgia put together. You can find us on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Scientists or head to our website, nakedscientists.com slash podcasts. Thank you to Duke Deck for the music and to Anthony Baggett, who composed my theme tune music. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be back next month with more Naked Astronomy.